Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. We're trying something new in the new year. We've started a podcast focused on the research, advocacy, and policies impacting public school superintendents. Guests will include superintendents, researchers, advocates, policymakers, and other folks doing interesting things in the field. If we do it right, with each episode, you'll learn something new and hopefully come away thinking about some of these issues in a new light. Each episode will be a new topic from a different angle. We'll talk federal, state, and local policies impacting superintendents and public education. We'll talk advocacy. We'll bring in folks to discuss new and interesting research and emerging trends in the field and any other topic we think you might want to hear about. If you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note. N-E-L-L-E-R-S-O-N at A-A-S-A dot org or on Twitter at Noellerson. All shows will be available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Our second episode, which you'll hear next, is with my colleagues Allison Klein and Laura Camera. These women are education reporters tasked with the work of covering the goings-on of the federal government as it impacts education in America and doing so in a manner that can be both understood and engaging. No small feat. Allison is the assistant editor at Education Week, and her responsibilities include my favorite blog, Politics K-12, dedicated to the adventures of Congress and federal agencies. Lauren Camera is with U.S. News and World Report. Both of these women have honed their skills in this craft for more than a decade and have been great allies and colleagues to work with. I hope you will find today's conversation interesting. I really enjoyed this conversation as an opportunity to highlight some of the sausage making of the edu stories you see in print and online, and to showcase another way that education policy is communicated to the public, and how much we at AASA rely on and work with reporters in helping to ensure that information is timely and accurate. Thank you for listening. Allison Klein and Lauren Camera are accomplished reporters dedicated to the education beat at their respective publications, Allison with Education Week and Lauren with U.S. News and World Report. They've each been in the field for more than a decade, and I've truly appreciated growing up with them in our individual education roles and growing the working relationship that we have today. Okay, I have some questions here, and I've shared them with you ahead of time, and I think we're just going to work our way through these. We might go a little bit off-tangent, as the flow of natural discussion might take us, but we have a basic frame to work from. So I want to start with a super easy warm-up question. What's the favorite story? What's your favorite story you've covered in your education reporter career? We'll start with Allison. So first of all, thank you so much, Noelle, for that nice introduction, and thank you for letting me come on with Lauren, who's one of my favorite colleagues in education reporting. Um, And thank you to all of ASA's members for putting up with my calls. I always appreciate uh, getting a superintendent's perspective on a story, so please please respond when when we ask. We really appreciate it. Um, So getting to my favorite story, this is reaching back a little bit, but I would have to say it was a series I did on a um, school in Kentucky that was part of the Obama administration's federal school improvement grant program. Um, And they went from having a really good first year in the SIG program where they saw just double-digit gains. Arnie Duncan actually came to visit them. 
Um, and, you know, it was, um, it really looked like they were an early success story for that program. And then by the third year, there had just been so many changes with um, Common Core coming online and um, just a lot of change within the district itself. And um, this principal ended up leaving before he was fired, basically. Um, and they were back in the bottom 5%. So it was kind of a sad ending, but it was a really cool way for me to see um, policy in action. Um, and understand how some of the decisions made at the U.S. Department of Education, you know, trickle down to the district level, and and there are a lot can be a lot of unintended consequences. Lauren, your favorite that, story? Well, I'll say Allison's um, description of her story just now was one of my favorite stories that you have written, also, and I just think it it like highlights all the awesome work that education uh, Education Week reporters do in getting like the real stories that are happening on the ground out to everyone so say that and I'll also echo Allison's um, remarks at the beginning just to thank you Noel and all of your members because we would not be able to do a lot of the work we do without you guys so um, we really appreciate your voice and input and letting us see what's happening on the ground um, I would say one of my favorite stories that I ever did was a project on Title One, which is the federal um, grant for low-income students um, I worked with a data editor at U.S. News, and what we did is essentially compiled all the federal data on where the money is going to show how some um, higher income communities are actually getting a lot more money in Title I funding than lower income communities. Um, and as part of that project, we built an enormous database that allows anyone to look up their school district and see and compare the funding, um, the Title I funding that they get to other nearby communities. So for us, this was a really great opportunity to put data in the hands of people who might not otherwise know where to go look for it and show them how to compare and contrast to really make a case for whatever type of you know education lobbying funding goals that they had. Um, so th that was just one of my, f I mean, I love writing about these really wonky topics and trying to get them to more of like a national audience. A lot of times it's tricky because the policies can be dry and very complicated, but they're important, right? So I, I love trying to figure out ways to um, get that information out. So I've read both of the stories that you talked about, and something that really resonated with me about how Allison summarized the story in Kentucky is that while she writes for Education Week, which in her blog focuses on federal education policy, even in just summarizing your story, you really highlighted how federal and state and local policies can either strengthen or undermine each other. And I mean, you talk about what the federal program is going to do, going to allow but Common Core came in, and there was an opportunity there for it to be good or bad, but it complicated things, and then whatever other policies. I mean, that's something that really resonated with me from that story. And then with Lauren's focus on Title I, we all know that AASA and myself in particular geeked out on the Title I formula fight and the unintended inequities that are playing out. So putting that type of data in front of readers can be probably still, even in that super user-friendly format, overwhelming, but it's a central location that they otherwise wouldn't have. And so you've both talked a lot about your readers, but you work for different publications. So how would you describe your core audience and your readers? Who are you writing for? Let's start with Lauren. 
So I'm writing for a more national audience. I'm writing for people who don't have a good base understanding of complicated education policy, the different types of legislation that um, Congress is considering right now. I'm writing for people who need a little bit of a uh, helping hand through some of the more complicated issues in education. Uh, but, but I'm also writing for people who, who want to know this stuff. So um, for me, my, my past history has been writing for places like Education Week, um, CQ, and Roll Call, which have more of a niche congressional and legislative following where I can get into budget numbers and really wonky issues, and, and that's great. But now I've sort of had to switch gears to um, broaden out uh, that, those explanations and make them more accessible. So our audience is a little bit more niche um, at Education Week. We are writing really in large part for AASA's membership. Um, district leaders are a huge um, core piece of our audience. Um, we're also writing for principals, teachers, to some extent parents, um, and then yes, the policymakers, the folks who work at the state education agency, folks who work at the federal education department or on Capitol Hill, especially um, with my beat and my blog. Um, and the advocacy community, including folks like Noel, um, and also the higher education community, because they obviously, re the research community, because they obviously have a big impact um, on the K-12 landscape as well. So you earlier both mentioned how you rely on practitioners like my members to help inform your stories. And to me, that draws a really obvious parallel between your job as reporters and my job as advocates. And that's around the idea of relationships. Relationships are key to me as an advocate. Relationships with our members, with other associations, on the Hill, with the reporters. What's the role of relationships in your work? So relationships for me um, are also really key and I appreciated my relationship with you and my relationship with your members. Um, getting like having sources and knowing folks that's how we know you know what the next big policy is going to be that's how we might know um, what's going on in congress or or um, at the u.s department of education is that advocates will explain it to us but more importantly um, both advocates and educators will explain to us the impact um, of those policies on their daily lives so that we can explain that to either back to the people making the policy like hey you know this isn't playing so well you know the uh, superintendents have some pushback on this. Um, for instance, the, the recent budget and the budget cuts. I mean, we have a chance the Department of Education puts out the news, um, but then we hear from superintendents why it would be a big deal to lose, for instance, the Title II program. So knowing folks, being able to talk to folks, I mean, that is really the lifeblood of my job. Yep, I agree with everything that Allison just said. Um, having the opportunity to speak to superintendents, to your members, um, really allows us to get a better understanding of how some of these uh, policies are playing out in real life, uh, especially being based in Washington, D.C. A lot of times we're stuck in this, um, you know, politics bubble where we talk very high level about how, as you mentioned, the sausage making goes. But what really matters is how the policies play out, how they're impacting, you know, superintendents, teachers, principals, students, parents, whether or not they're um, moving the needle on academic improvement and, you know, any number of things. So without having those voices, um, we wouldn't be able to do our job. So definitely um, instrumental part. 
So wait, following up on something you just said, Lauren, this idea that a lot of what you guys cover is more at the 30,000 foot level, still very much inside the DC political bubble, you're covering federal education policy. And we know that so much of what they consider doesn't get over the finish line and so much more of education consequence plays out in the state and local level. So how do you, as reporters who focus primarily on the federal education beat, how can you cover that? And how do you distinguish between what might be just activity and something that might get over the finish line? And how do you decide when something that might not get over the finish line still warrants reporting or coverage or attention? I think that when you know something isn't going to get over the finish line, oftentimes it still warrants covering and attention because it is an important indicator of where um, either the administration or a particular um, member of Congress is thinking of moving in the future on that issue. And, and, and usually um, once an issue does get over the finish line, if you look at its history, you'll see that uh, it started as something that people knew wouldn't get over the finish line. And so being able to track even the infancy of a specific policy is really helpful um, for people to be able to give their input on on how it should be shaped or what it should look like in the end. So I would definitely agree with that. I think that sometimes it's it just tells you where um, an important policymaker's priorities are. Um, for instance, I'm going back again to the budget, um, knowing that um, President Trump wants to make um, so many wants to get rid of so many key education programs. I think that's important information um, for educators to have. Um, but you know, in terms of getting out and knowing what's going on at the state and local level, I'm really lucky um, because it's not just me. I'm not a one-woman band. Um, I work at a place where there, where everybody is an education reporter and everybody covers education, um, and we do have folks who cover what's going on in states and school districts more closely than I do, and I definitely rely on their reporting. Okay, so you just referenced all the people at Edweek. Everyone works mm -hmm. on education, and Lauren works at a publication that just has one little niche of a carve-out that covers education. So how does that impact your work? How, how is that different? And so, Allison, you've been at Edweek for the entirety of your education reporter career, or the, the bulk of it, correct? Um, the bulk of it. Yeah, and then Lauren, you referenced that you have moved a little bit. You were at CQ and Roll Call, then you worked with Allison at Edweek, and now you're at U.S. News and World Report. How does that, per this perspective of your overarching publication, impact your work? For me, it's actually been pretty fun. Um, I started at a really niche publication, uh, Congressional Quarterly CQ, as it's known, um, which then merged with Roll Call, or CQ Roll Call for a while. So I wrote for both publications and then hopped over to Education Week. So a lot of my um, reporting has been to a very niche audience focusing specifically on education as it plays out um, in DC on Capitol Hill. Um, and that gave me an unbelievable sort of education in education policy, if you will. <laughs> so now that I write for a broader audience, um, I, I understand uh, the, the details of the very complicated policy, but I'm also in a position where um, it's a bit of like a puzzle. It's like putting a puzzle together, right? Is I have to write it in a way that makes sense to a broader audience, which is I find really fun because 
education is so important and I think that a lot of times it gets glossed over in the national media, although I do think it's becoming more and more important we're seeing that. But uh, for me, it's, it's uh, an honor, sort of, to be able to take these complicated things that are born in D.C. And, and try to explain them to our readers. So working at an education-focused publication means that you can do stories that maybe you wouldn't do if you were at, you know, going for more of a national audience. Stories on exciting things like um, college and career ready indicators and ESSA plans. Um, supplement, not supplant. Supplement, not supplant. Services. Yeah, sure. Um, all of those things. So you, um, but you're, you're, re you're really writing from the lens of what do I need to tell this audience so that they can do um, their jobs better? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get, you can go wonky, you can go technical but you always want to make sure that what you're providing is good practical information um, for district leaders and other folks in education. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit to something more direct in your day-to-day -day work. What's the biggest change you've seen in your profession as an education reporter during your time on the job? And this is a really broad question. This could include content, the number of reporters, I remember going through the depths of the recession and we were all relatively young in our jobs and what that looks like, and online media. What's really changed in, in your work and your role? Well, I know I just said that a lot of times education coverage gets glossed over, but I would <laughs> say that since um, over the last decade, really, there's been a significant rise in the number of education reporters and the number of outlets specifically covering education. So I'm thinking here of the Chalkbeats, the Heckinger Reports, um, other you know, niche education publications. Uh, there's a lot more focus on education issues from major media outlets, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. So I do think that it's growing and there is um, a recognition that it is important. Uh, and I'd also say in terms of issues that have changed, uh, in the last couple of years especially, there's been an incredibly heightened focus on education through an equity, equity lens. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stories you see about um, uh, low-income kids, students of color, students with disabilities, foster students, uh, students in the foster care system, homeless students, you're seeing a lot more coverage of some of these um, historically disadvantaged populations. So I want to go back to something you said earlier in your question, though, because when we talk to superintendents or what we might hear reported out at a different level, I think 100% you are spot on in talking about how there's more outlets or more coverage. But would you distinguish at all between the number of reporters at the national level and the number of reporters on the education beat at the local level. And I don't have working experience here, but I do know our superintendents and some of our other members are reporting that the school-specific beat at the local level is something that's changed. And I don't know if you can speak to that at all or how much this might be related to smaller papers being bought up and those staffing patterns. 
So yeah, so there's definitely been um, a big change in the number of regional education reporters out there. Um, we've seen some people, including um, a longtime reporter in Charlotte, um, Ann Doss Helms, like left her job recently. She had a ton of um, just institutional knowledge about that school system. So that is, you know, like a real loss. Huge yeah, loss. huge loss. <laughs> Um, and I mean, my husband actually um, is a DC correspondent for um, a regional newspaper, uh, the Omaha World Herald, and he feels really lucky to have that job because um, regional correspondents in DC are going down. So it's just kind of a change in um, regional newspapers all around the country as like national news is kind of taking over, regional news is, is taking a step back. And so education is kind of part of that broader trend. I guess like the good news is um, for, uh, educators and people who care about this topic is that there have been um, a, a number of new education-focused publications that have sprung up. Obviously, we at Education Week are trying to fill that void of um, regional reporters and cover lots more state and local news, um, but also, you know, Chalkbeat has started and, and they cover, they do really great coverage um, of a bunch of different states and school systems. Um, and so, and the Heckinger Report also does um, helps some of these local and regional newspapers with coverage. So, hopefully, you know we're we're not seeing it go away. We're just seeing a shifting a model. Shift. So I want to go to a question that's totally not at all on here, but you, you've got my brain a spinning. So, every year we read the PDK survey, right? The one that comes out every September, and one of their consistent findings is that people give the schools they know a pretty good grade, a B, right? But when asked to report on the nation's public schools, it's much more likely a D or an F. And I just can't help but wonder how much there might be a link, maybe not correlation or causation, but you can give a good grade to the school you want or that you know. But at the same time that we see fewer regional reporters covering the local schools and more broader national coverage of schools, how much can that narrative help be realistic in what is going on in public schools and help the public understand the disconnect between if everybody thinks their school is a B, how does the entire system get a D or an F? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it's easy to, I mean, your own school you know, right? You know the teachers, you've met the principal, you know these folks, you trust them, you're going to give them, you're going to want to give them a higher score because they're people you know. But then, yes, there are a lot of really negative stories, certainly about the inequities in our system. There are some wonderful, amazing public schools out there. Um, but there are also some that really are dealing with a very um, difficult population of students, and they may not be getting the resources that they need. And so um, there, you know, things like test scores and student outcomes just doesn't look as good. And that might not be because you know, maybe if you went to that school um, and met the principal and met the teachers, you'd say these people are working so hard, they're doing a great job, they just need more resources. Mm -hmm. um, but that is a, can be a complicated story um, to tell and for people to digest. Yeah, I would agree with Allison. I think there's definitely a disconnect. And we've seen that, I, I think, going back almost a decade, this has always been the case where people rate their own children's school um, as you know, great, and the larger um, education space as doing poorly for a lot of kids. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Allison said. I think that um, the media doesn't help all the time in how there are a lot of stories out there about the glaring inequities mm -hmm. um, between the haves and the have-nots. There's, there's also a shift going on right now that plays into this, I think, with data. 
Um, data is a little bit messy right now as you know a, a lot of the shift in the new education law is putting the onus on states to do some new things with their data, new accountability systems. So I do think that there's a possibility that some of these overly negative narratives change when um, states and school districts start making more information available to reporters, although I do think it's going to be messy at first because not every state is totally figured out how to do this. But well, and not every state chief or local superintendent, plus their heart, is necessarily able to relate a compelling narrative in under understandable terms. Exactly. I mean, you can have a lot of data, and I think what you said is something we're definitely looking forward to. I mean, specifically when we look at the upcoming data that will be reported on SF fiscal transparency. That data could be pretty damaging if a school district isn't in front of explaining in clear terms why there might be spending discrepancies between schools. Uh, but thank you for entertaining me on that little tangent. Okay, I want to pivot completely. I want to go to something much more almost frivolous and lighthearted. So, edu-geek moment. What is your favorite professional edu-geek moment? And you don't even need to have one. You could have two or three. Have you ever fangirled over an opportunity that your work afforded you, a specific interview, a meeting, an event? For my example, I had an opportunity where I got to lobby the sitting secretary directly. Now, we don't always agree with Secretary Betsy DeVos, but I will always fangirl over the opportunity to directly advocate to a member of a sitting cabinet. Lauren, what I'll was tell your a, moment? I'll tell a story that I owe Allison, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I started at Education Week, Allison was working on a really big project and had a deadline. And she was given an opportunity to accompany then Education Secretary Arne Duncan on his back-to-school bus tour through Tennessee and Georgia and some other states um, that was meant to highlight some of the work that was being done in connection with the race competitive race to the top grant uh, program. Uh, I had just come from spending about eight months uh, traveling across Tennessee studying the very same thing. And so when I got to Ed Week and Allison was working on this big project, she gave me the opportunity to travel alongside Secretary uh, Duncan. And for it was a three-day bus tour, and we went to a bunch of different you know, stops, and I got to see sort of the behind-the-scenes workings of how, um, how something like that is put together. Uh, I traveled on the bus with him, so that meant I got to see him FaceTiming his kids. He really liked to watch WNBA on breaks. Did you play um, basketball? Oh, I did not play basketball oh, with him. Although at ask. every stop, he did sign a basketball for um, the education officials there. So, I mean, I, I pretty much owe that one to Allison, though. Very nice to see women supporting women. <laughs> Thank you for making that fangirl <laughs> moment possible. But Allison, what's your fangirl moment? So mine also deals with education secretaries. Um, I think my first, <laughs> all three of us. yeah, all three of us. We have right? an affliction. <laughs> my my first um, fangirl moment was actually Parts. interviewing um, Margaret Spellings um, oh, at yeah. the, um, who was just a really fun education secretary to cover. You know, she like her or dislike her, and certainly people had very strong feelings about Margaret Spellings. Um, she did a lot. She and she just um, had a really uh, fun kind of folksy way of talking about um, really weedy policy. 
Um, so I met her for coffee, just her and me for coffee, at the um, Republican National Convention in um, Minnesota back in 2008. And so for me, that that coffee with her was, we just sat down for half an hour and talked, and that was probably, I think, my, my biggest original fangirl moment. I actually did, um, after Lauren got to go on the bus tour, I did get to go on the on, on uh, other subsequent bus tours um, with Secretary Duncan and actually his um, the uh, gentleman who replaced him, Secretary King. Um, and I did get to um, interview uh, Secretary DeVos um, when she was You're pretty, yeah, pretty new in office. And I was in with her in a car for about 40 minutes. Um, and she was, you know, very warm and approachable and yeah and so um that which is kind of different from her um national reputation and i will say also secretaries um duncan and king were great to interview really smart um really uh really really they obviously all, all four of these folks really cared about their jobs um even though they have really different <laughs> ideas about mm-hmm. where they would like to take the country so getting to spend one-on-one time with the secretary is, is always awesome but my favorite part of my job i wouldn't call it fangirl but my favorite part of my job is always going into schools um oh, i really yeah. love getting to see you know getting to see kids and talking to teachers. Um, I recently went to Georgia for a story about game-based, game-based assessments, um, and that was really fun and, and just as cool as interviewing a secretary in a different way. So piggybacking off of what you just ended with, though, one of my favorite things to do at work is we will take Hill staff on what I call field trips. So if they want to see a program and to get them into a school and not necessarily with their boss because that has a whole different set of implications for is the press going to be there but taking hill staff and i just remember taking two on a field trip probably in like 2011 or 12 after the healthy and hunger free kids act had been put into effect and we had some concerns with the meal patterns and i took these hill staff and we went into west virginia we we bypassed the common practice of one of the drivable suburbs and we were in an elementary cafeteria and just these little four four and five and six year olds coming up to the hill staff can you open my Capri Sun? And they just kind of overwhelmed them, but they also saw the realities of implementing a school nutrition program. And anytime you can be in a school, oh my goodness. Anytime. Anytime. Okay, so we talked about our Edu-Geek moment, and we all had a fangirl moment. Got to get a little bit more serious here. So we talked a lot about data, and we talked about news and coverage. I want to see how a more general news term may or may not apply to our little section of the world, our little edu heaven here. Does the concept of fake news apply to education coverage? Have you seen an impact or consequence among your readers? Lauren looks really excited to answer this question. (laughs) So I'll say that I haven't seen a huge impact. I think it's partly because Education Week is a subscription publication, um, although the subscriptions are really inexpensive, and I encourage everybody listening to subscribe. Sorry, that's my little plug. (laughs) Just doing Um, your job. Yeah, just doing my job. That's right. Um, So, you know, most of our subscribers are educators, and that means that they have some idea of who journalists are and what we do. And so they don't, we don't get a ton of, you know, people shouting at us that we're fake news. that said, I do think that this is um, a worrying trend. Um, definitely one we're watching in terms of civic education. And I think it's something that um, school districts uh, will have to figure out how to address and journalists together. Um, because I think if we can't trust the media um, or if, if people feel that they can't trust objective media, that is a huge blow to democracy. 
Um, and I think it's something that we all, everyone in education and journalism and folks who sit at the intersection like myself really need to be doing some deep thinking about. But there's a big difference between can't trust the media and feel you can't trust the media. Because one is more of a reality where the media cannot be trusted. Feel that you can't trust the media seems to imply that perhaps we need to have a little bit more of a candid conversation about individually evaluating what you're reading and thinking about your source and wondering if you should accept everything you see on Facebook and just readily accepting everything. But I think you said those two terms very smoothly and seamlessly, and that's how we hear them. But I think it's a really big distinction. Can you trust the media, or do you feel like you can trust the media? And your perception of whether you can trust the media, is that driven by a different media source, or is that driven by your individual evaluation or responsible consideration of the sources you're reading? Yeah, and I also think that um, actually Secretary DeVos has taken this issue head on um, in a couple of the sort of fireside chats that she has done in the last year or two, specifically calling for an increase in civic education. Um, she's called out fake news. She's called out the um, influence of Twitter fighting. She um, has, you know, been thinking about this. So. I would agree with Allison that um, our little corner of the news world hasn't been in significantly impacted by this phenomenon, but it's there, and schools are, as you know, as your members know, trying to figure out ways to um, increase the understanding among students of how to responsibly know what to read, where to go for, um, you know, information that's accurate and uh, not partisan in any way so mm -hmm. I will say some one thing that worries me and I just want to get this straight for anybody who um, may have this perception is that there are people out there who think that sor the sources in our story the people that we quote like pay us or somehow um, we have some sort of a deal with them to, that they'll be quoted or featured and that is just not the case like really with any mainstream newspaper definitely education week definitely US News um, hopefully your original newspaper. It's just, it's not a pay-to-play situation. So you guys should know that. Well, and I will know that as someone who looks at if AASA is represented, did, did Sasha or I get quoted, or Jimmy Minicello, our press guy, works to make sure Dan or our officers are quoted, we know that there's limited space that goes into your articles. So if we get one, we're just happy to get the representation. And we just think we're super thankful. If anything, we want to, like have balloons every time we can get some coverage on an issue that's important to us. Yeah, that's actually a really important point just to sort of like play off of what you just said. Um, a lot of times, especially when we're writing about something we're not overly familiar with or haven't written a lot about in the past, we talk to lots and lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different, not only areas of the country, but different sides of an issue, different political mm -hmm. sides of an issue. Um, not everything gets put into our story, mm -hmm. but everything gets um, used basically to help us write more author authoritatively about an issue, and that is so incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. So um, again, thanks to your members for always being willing to, to chat. Um, we don't always have the ability to quote everyone we talk to, although we would like to <laughs> most of the time. Um, but it all gets used, and it's all incredibly helpful for us. So. But that goes back to relationships, because there are absolutely times I've talked to you and thought, man, that was a great quote, and then I don't see it. But I understand that it's context or 
part of it. You absorb the information even if you couldn't regurgitate it. And I mean, that's a relationship. I need to know that you put enough stock in the positions that our members have told us to take that you will call us. Or I need to know that when you're talking to our superintendents, we can see you reflecting what that's they're saying, even if it's not quoted. And it just goes down to the relationships. Can Will someone take your call even if they know they're not going to get quoted? And I think that's part of being an educational leader. Have the narrative, have the conversation without necessarily needing to see your name in print. Uh, do it for the better good. But it's always cool when you can get the quote in. Really fun. Okay. Last couple questions here as we wrap up on our time together. And we've been pretty timeless in our overarching conversation today, but I would not be me talking to you if we didn't get some substance particularly related to what's going on right now. So what education story or stories are you most anticipating this year, Allison? So I will say that on the federal beat, it has been kind of a quiet time. Um, but one thing that I am watching sort of unfold slowly is the implementation of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which gives districts um, more say over how to improve their lowest performing schools and schools where subgroups of students, English language learners, students in special education, anyone listening to this podcast knows who I'm talking about, <laughs> um, are struggling. So I'm really curious to see what you as districts are going to be doing about that. Um, and so that is probably the story I'm watching most closely. And if you want to talk about this issue, um, I want to talk to you. So email me at A-K-L-E-I-N at E-P-E dot o-r-g or give me a call at 301-280-3157 and if I talk too fast you can get my contact information from Noel. And I was going to emphasize that for any of our in listeners who do want to take us up on the opportunity to build a working relationship with two ACE education reporters I have their permission and would be happy to direct you directly connect you with them via email either Allison or Lauren. Okay, Lauren, what's the story you're anticipating this year? Okay, everything is coming up higher ed. For now. Ta-da! Until Title IX. Until Title IX, yes. And then FERPA. No, and okay, then, so yeah. higher ed. So, <laughs> as many of your members probably know, Congress um, is in the process of trying to reauthorize the Higher Education Act, which hasn't been updated for almost a decade now. Um, we have some familiar faces on this issue in... Senator Alexander and Senator Murray, who, um, of course, uh, worked together to craft the new SLA. Uh, it's not new anymore. Why do we always say that? I don't know. It's almost four years it old. It is, yeah. But we're still um, waiting for a Title I report. And uh, Congressman Bobby Scott in the House. Yeah, he was here a decade ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, so they will be trying to put their touches on uh, modernizing this behemoth federal mm -hmm. higher education law, um, everything from student loans, teacher certification, which your members probably yep. care a lot loans about. And, yeah, loans um, and they will be uh, chatting up at great length, I assume, about Title IX. Um, For our listeners, what do you mean? What's, what's that hot issue, Title IX? Oh, you know, just a little thing about campus sexual assault and um, potentially, Harassment. you know, transgender bathroom issues as well. Um, Absolutely trickles down to the K-12 environment, yeah. but this is largely seen as playing out in the higher ed environment. Yes. Higher ed reauth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so definitely a hot space to watch, and I think especially coming on the heels of the uh, recent college admissions scandal. 
from last week. Uh, you'll see um, Congress trying to, you know, figure out a way to address some of the major inequities in admissions as well. Well, and if we're talking about hot topics in the last week, I mean, we had the president's budget, the announcement on equitable services, the higher ed crisis, and then was it earlier this week, the issue of the admission rate for the elite high schools in New York City and the rep representation or proportionality of who they are are not allowing in based off of a single test goes back to what both of you talked about earlier about national headlines really focusing on equities. And so tying it all together, good job. I don't think we intended to do that, but when you're good at your job, that's what happens. Good job, ladies. Okay, so we talked a little about, about what you're anticipating this year. Specific to 2019, what do you predict for education policy? And I want to give you the clue that the next question is about the 2020 election, so don't talk about the 2020 election right now. I mean, we could talk funding, FERPA, are they going to do anything on vouchers? What hearings are we going to see? Infra will we get an infrastructure package? Ladies, I need your crystal ball out. I don't think we're going to see necessarily a big infrastructure package like the House Democrats would like. Um, you know, the President Trump has talked a big game in the past about producing an infrastructure package and at first it included funding for schools and then it didn't and um, I have I at least haven't heard him connect schools to that in a really long time so I, I, even if there is an infrastructure package that moves I would be surprised to see much of any school funding included in that um, maybe you have a different take no different take. I mean, the funding reality is they have to take a big vote to do a cap increase to just level fund current programs, and they deficit finance to tax bill. I don't think they're going to deficit finance an infrastructure package. Yeah. I mean, it, it, if anything, uh, in the K-12 space, we might see some more positioning by Secretary DeVos to expand school choice, um, which we have seen in the last couple months. So um, maybe watch out for... Um, for that. But other than that, I don't think we're going to see a lot of things move in the K-12 space. Yeah, move over the finish line. There might be some activity, but nothing to finalization. So I would agree with that. Like a lot of conversation, not a ton of action. I'm going to make two <laughs> really easy predictions that I know are going to be right. Um, first, I'm going to say that Congress will reject um, the proposed cuts in President Trump's budget. Um, mm -hmm. They rejected them when it was a Republican-controlled Congress. Now that the Democrats have the House, um, cuts to Title II, uh, Title IV, after-school programs. Yeah, they have no shot, so everybody breathe a sigh of relief, and I'm sure that prediction will turn out to be accurate. Um, and then my other prediction, which I also know will be accurate, is that I think I predict that Bobby Scott, who's the chairman of the um, – House Education Committee will be doing a lot of oversight, and we'll see a lot of Trump administration officials, um, including from the U.S. Department of Education, you know, raising their right hand and swearing under oath and talking about things like civil rights um, and implementation of the Every Student Succeeds Act and that Title IX guidance that mm -hmm. um, Lauren referenced earlier. So I think we'll see a lot of oversight, a lot of um, rejection of um, Trump's proposals and policies, but not a lot of kind of new, cool, interesting proposals and making it over the finish line. Don't mind me over here. My little edu-geek heart is breaking if we're not going to have any edu-geek heart like policy fruition items this year. It's okay. Okay, so 2020 election. We have a presidential election next year, guys. Now, spoiler alert, Ed Week has done a little bit of the digging around and has looked into, what are we at 13 or 14 Democratic candidates right now? 
I actually don't remember. It was 13 last week when I looked, but I do know that Ed Week looked through all of the websites and has tweeted out the information and published in online the information for all of the candidates. And the big news item yesterday was that not one single website includes a platform or specific detail related to education. Oh, I'm misrepresenting Allison. No, that is not 100% true, although most of them don't. It is fair to say that most of them don't, and definitely the big names don't. Actually, the most information that you'll get on education will be on like the website of like Andrew Yang, who you've probably never heard of. He is a businessman from, I believe, California. Um, it is really unlikely that Andrew Yang will be our next president, but he has a lot of ideas on education. You can go to his website and check them out. Um, uh, John Delaney, who is a former congressman from Maryland, um, also has a pretty fleshed out um, section on his website on education. Um, but if you're looking to see where, say, Bernie Sanders or um, Cory Booker or, or Beto, or Beto yeah, any of these big names, uh, people who might actually have a shot at being the Democratic nominee, um, although, you know, you never know. Sorry, John Delaney and, and uh, Andrew Yang. Um, <laughs> you never know. You know, no one expected Trump, so maybe maybe there'll be a Yang search. Who knows? Um, if you want to know where <laughs> they stand, don't look at their websites. But they do have records um, in Congress that we can um, go back and look at. Um, obviously, um, Senator Bernie Sanders has been really big on um, – free college, um, and uh, he pushed back quite a bit against the Obama administration's agenda. He was um, anti-No Child Left Behind back before that was cool. So so, um, so yeah, they have they have a record. Cor uh, Senator Cory Booker has a really interesting record on education because <laughs> he actually used to work pretty closely with um, Secretary DeVos before she was a secretary. Uh, he, he was part, I believe he was on the board of one of her organizations, um, and he was a fan um, of vouchers when he was mayor of Newark, but now that he is in Congress um, or in the Senate and running for president, he has definitely distanced himself both from um, vouchers and from Betsy DeVos, so I think that'll be kind of an interesting story to watch. Um, I think the big sleeper issue, and not it's not even that sleeper, it's, it's like something to pay attention to in the 2020 campaign is universal um, early childhood education. We've already heard oh. Elizabeth Warren come out and embrace that. So that is, um, and I expect more presidential candidates will. I think most of the ones who are senators have signed on to a bill that I believe Senator Murray and um, Representative Scott introduced that would um, significantly expand early childhood education. So I think we'll see far more proposals on that. I don't have to say anything now because Allison just outlined that so brilliantly for all of your listeners. But yes, um, free college okay. and early ed okay. are going to be the top two um, education issues to play nationally um, in the presidential election. I think in the Democratic primary, um, school choice could play, especially uh, as it relates to Cory Booker and his... Um, Record. Record as a mayor of Newark and working with um, Secretary DeVos. Uh, a line. Charters? Maybe more nuance there in charters? Maybe more nuance there. I, I also think what will be really interesting, and you, you see some of the national teachers unions trying to sort of push this already, is how to, um, how to sort of push this wave of educator unrest into the 2020 election and make this a moment um, that teacher mm -hmm. activism can can capitalize on and really make some of these issues of um, teacher pay, uh, wraparound services, and education funding writ large part of 
um, a national dialogue. You're starting to see them pivot to try to do that right now. Well, and one thing I don't envy is NEA and AFT having to figure out who they're going to endorse. I mean, they have a lot of choices right now, but if we, I don't think anyone can predict which one they're going to land on. We don't even know who has yet to announce. It's really early to have announced. But don't worry, we have the rest of this year and all of next year until November to follow along for election fund. And I would also just like to say, I did give out, this is Allison, I gave out my uh, contact information earlier. And if you want to um, let me know what you think of the presidential election and any of the candidates, I definitely want to hear from district leaders. So mm-hmm. please, um, please reach out. We'll be doing that for sure. Okay, ladies, I am looking at the time, and you have given a chunk of your your time with, with us today. So I just, again, want to say thanks for tuning in. Lauren and Allison, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate being able to provide our listeners with the opportunity to hear the boots-on-the-ground perspective of the education reporting work that you do from the storied institutions of Education Week and U.S. News and World Report. So, again, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Allison and Lauren, thank you for joining us today. I am more than happy to connect any of our listeners directly to Allison or Lauren. So reach out and let me know if you'd like that introduction. Or you can follow them online via the Twitter. Allison is at politicsk12. And Lauren is at Lauren on the Hill, all one word. So that concludes this issue or this edition of our Pep Talk podcast. Thank you all, and we look forward to chatting with you again.